Welcome to Socalo, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight, regular guest host Oscar Garza sits down in front of a live audience at the Los Angeles Central Library with one of television's hottest writers and performers. You know him as The Daily Show's senior black correspondent, but beyond the spoofs, Larry Wilmore has led a career of creating, writing, or producing such hit shows as In Living Color and The Bernie Mac Show. Wilmore recalls how watching Richard Pryor try out new material made him give up his dreams of being a comedian, but only temporarily. We'll also find out how he got fired from a show he created and how he learned to face his fears and thrive in the competitive television industry. Here is Ciudad Magazine Editor-in-Chief Oscar Garza. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to, to be with us. You're uh, from Los Angeles. I was born in Los Angeles, grew up in Pomona, actually. Um, <laughs> yep. Pomona, no one's from Pomona. Usually you get a little Thanks bit. for the applause. <laughs> you get one person, usually. Like, no Sorry, Pomona Larry. ringers in the crowd. We don't want to go to Pomona, man. Sorry. You know, let's start by talking about The Daily Show, because I have to say that I've been a fan of The Daily Show since it launched, and uh, was was the first time, I think I caught your first appearance on the show, and I was shocked. I was shocked <laughs> that the senior black correspondent on The Daily Show would actually be black. Right. <laughs> Yeah. How, how did this come about? Yes, this revolutionary idea. There. <laughs> you know, it was one of those weird things where I had uh, decided to start performing again after having careers as a performer, and I was trying to figure out well, what would be the best way to start doing this again. And my managers, I had just signed with them. One of them had some relationship with The Daily Show. They said, what about The uh, Daily Show? And I thought, man, that's a great idea. And, and I swear to God, it was one of those things where we just called John Stewart and said, hey, can I be in The Daily Show? I'm like, okay, sounds pretty good. And it's like you would never think of the direct approach to getting on something, you know. It's like, you know how they say it's the, the great-looking girls at home because nobody called her to ask her to the prom, you know. That was John Stewart. He's like, okay, come on down, you know? And uh, I met with John, and we talked about it. John had seen me on The Office and, and knew my reputation as a writer. So he, he had liked my writing style, and they were looking to shake up the correspondent staff anyway. DJ Jabberbaum, the head writer, talked to me and said, oh, it's, you know, the timing couldn't have been better because Rob Corger was leaving. I think Ed Helms was going into the office. In fact, I was going from the office to The Daily Show, and he was going from The Daily Show to the office. It was like a prisoner exchange program. (laughs) (laughs) It felt like, you know. So they thought it was great, and and they had hired Asif right before I came in, and John Oliver, I think a couple of weeks before that. So we all kind of came in at the same time. Oliver's from London, Austin's Indian, you know, I'm a senior black correspondent, all that stuff. And so. the senior Mexican correspondent. Right, and the senior Mexican <laughs> correspondent, because you, you got to represent. De facto, that's, that's good. Um, you were a fan of the show? Oh, yeah. I was a fan of the show. My wife is actually a huge fan of the show, and T-voted uh, every night, and she would watch it, and I would go, oh, yeah, The Daily Show, oh, that's funny, because I was always a fan of Jon Stewart, actually, more than I was of The Daily Show, just from his stand-up days and... And when he would be on the Larry Sanders show, I always thought it was really funny the way he made fun of himself on that show. But he was always a really funny comic. But um, I loved Stephen Colbert on The Daily Show back in, right after the 2000 election and all that stuff they did. For about four years straight, I just thought, you just couldn't touch some of the stuff they were doing, you know. 
maybe we should work now go back to the beginning to figure out how you got here get in the way back machine you went to theater school or you majored in theater well i actually went to cal poly university which is an agricultural engineering school so it makes sense that i was a theater major there it's a lot of sense. You also right. apparently have a history of going places where there aren't a lot of black people. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Not a lot of brothers trying to figure out agriculture and engineering at the same time. <laughs> Actually, it was in Pomona, so it was, it was where I grew up. And I was, I was working at a gas station and, you know, just trying to make ends meet, that kind of thing, just trying to work my way through school. So I, that was the reason why I went there, just because it was local. It was and nearby. what had got you interested in theater? Uh, well, I was always interested in that, um, even as a kid growing up. And um, I knew I wanted to go into showbiz, but, you know, you're at that age where you're not quite sure. You don't know if you have the nerve. And even though I was 16 and 17, I used to sneak into the comedy store um, in Hollywood. And I would go up on open mic night a couple of times. And, I, you know, I was under 18, so I really didn't belong there. And I remember I would see David Letterman and people like Andy Kaufman. I remember Richard Pryor came in once, and I was in the back, and I was like, <gasps> I literally was shaking like a leaf. He came by, and he couldn't have been nicer. He's like, hey, man, how you doing? <laughs> you know, the way that he talked, and I was like, I... <laughs> and he walked by, and he goes up on stage, and he was trying out material, and I just couldn't believe it. And at the time, I mean, it took me about two or three years after that to try it again because I thought, I could never be that good. This guy is unbelievable. You know, who am I to think that I could do this stuff? So I dedicated myself to theater at the time and kind of stopped doing stand-up for a few years because I was so uh, blown away by the people I was seeing. It was really the golden age of stand-up. This is like 1979 when I was graduating from high school and I used to go there all the time. That kind of pushed me back to dedicate myself to theater and get more of a rounded background because I was always interested in theater. It, it wasn't like I did it as a default. I was really interested in it, uh, studying the classics and all that kind of stuff too. You know? But you threw out, you just almost on a throwaway basis, on a throwaway, you said you, you always knew you wanted to be in showbiz. Where did that come from? Uh, boy, man, that's a good question. You know what? I kind of answer like people say, Larry, how did you get into comedy? And I say, you know what, to be honest with you, I feel like comedy is in me and showbiz is the way that I get it out, you know. Because <laughs> otherwise I'd be at a bank getting it out, making people laugh and, <laughs> and getting fired all the time, you know. <laughs> so it happens to be a good place for me to get it out. At the time when I went into showbiz, I kind of felt like I had nothing to lose. Because, you know, we basically didn't have a lot of money growing up. And I remember my father went back to school at the time to become a doctor. And I thought, man, if he could do that, I could try this out for 20 years. And, you know, <laughs> I could go back to school at any time and do that. Why not try it? So the one thing that really turned me around, I sold bookstore to door one summer when I was in college back in uh, New England. And I went to so many homes where I found people were kind of unhappy. They were kind of like trapped and jobs maybe that they didn't want to do. And I was really touched by a lot of families, really met a lot of great people. But that really affected me in a huge way. And I thought, you know what, I may as well just follow my dream of what I want to do. That summer actually was the summer before I became a professional. My first job was at the Taper here at the Mark Taper Forum in 1983. I went down and auditioned for this thing called the Improvisational Theater Project just on a whim. My um, professor said, hey, Larry, they have this part open. You might want to go 
just try it out. And I thought, okay. And I went down, and I was so naive about showbiz. I didn't have a picture or a resume, you know, and you had to do everything. It was, it was theater, and you had to invent the show through improvisation, so you had to improvise, you know, and you had to sing, you had to dance, you had all that stuff. I couldn't sing to save my life, you know. I could, if I heard someone singing, I could imitate it because I was an impressionist. I could do impressions, you know. Like, I could do Sammy singing Candyman, you know, but I could, <laughs> I could, I couldn't sing it myself, you know, if I had to, you know. The Candyman, the Candyman, you know, so I was like, what? What, what the hell is up with that? How come I can do that? So, but, but, uh, but you passed the audition, apparently. I passed the, but the way that I passed it was, they said, uh, well, Larry, we really like you a lot. Is there, do you have a phone? I didn't have a phone. I said, well, you know, I'm going to be in Santa Barbara this weekend. Why don't I just call you guys? You know? <laughs> I swear to God, I said it as innocent as possible. And they were like, uh, okay. <laughs> oh, and I remember I improvised a scene with the producer where I, I picked him up and I shook him and I threw him down. And they said, Larry, do you know that's the producer? And I went, ooh. <laughs> and, you know. So I didn't care was the thing. I just didn't care. I was just free. And they really liked the freedom that I had, you know. And so sure enough, I called them when I was in Santa Barbara over the weekend. I was there with some buddies. And I go, so, man, what's going on? Are you guys, uh... they go, well, Larry, um, sorry, we don't, we, we're not going to give you the, um, it was an understudy role. We're not going to give you that. And I go, okay, no problem. It was nice meeting. He said, oh, no, we want to offer you the uh, equity lead role. And I was like, okay, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> All right, I'll see you later. Wait, Larry, wait, we need your... <laughs> There's some so, waves, man. I gotta go. At that point, did you think you would have a th- career in theater? Well, you know what? You always... That's always your dream. You know, you're going towards that. I always, like, set up plans, and then I allow for stuff to happen along the way. I mean, I really was dedicating myself at the time to be an actor, but I never forgot about stand-up. You know, I knew that I had to go back to stand-up. It was like Luke in the cave and the Empire Strikes Back, you know, face your fears, Larry. <laughs> I was so afraid from seeing those guys who were so great that I hadn't gone back in three years. But once I started acting and, and I did it professionally and I was paid for it, and I realized, well, maybe I'm doing the right thing. You know, I decided to give it another shot. And it was at that point that I kept doing it and didn't stop. And, um, and I, was, I had worked some odd jobs at the time, and I stopped just doing any kind of job and just dedicated myself to stand-up. And it didn't matter whether I made $10 a week or whatever. I just lived on it. And I ate a lot of turkey a la king out of a can and, and spaghetti in those days. But it was great. It was and, you did, and you did stand-up for how long at that point? I started professionally... Well, I guess I started full-time in 83, 84. I did it, I was headlining clubs in two years, actually, believe it or not. And I remember the first time I went, it was at the Newport Beach Laugh Stop. And this is, you know, it sounds like a Hollywood story, but I always believed in visualization and seeing yourself and doing that, you know. So um, it, it backfired when I visualized myself being arrested, but that's a different thing. You, know? <laughs> you don't want to visualize the wrong stuff, okay? But... <laughs> But no, but I saw, I visualized my name on the marquee. I said, in two years, you know, I want, to, I want my name to be up there. And in two years, almost to the day, I was actually headlining the club, you know, and said, Larry Wilmore. And I, and I remember looking at it, I go, oh, that's cool. And I went, oh, wait a minute. I, I thought about that two years ago. That was really cool. And so I thought, hmm, maybe I have something here. So I always kind of did that in my career. I would try to visualize where I wanted to go. And what was it about stand-up that appealed to you? And did you, I mean, you, well, did you I'll feel Well, like- I'll tell you exactly what it was. When I started acting professionally, like I said, I didn't know the rules, right? I didn't know the etiquette. There is an etiquette in showbiz. And one of the things I would do, I got a part on the Facts of Life. I auditioned for the part of Tootie's boyfriend or something like that, and he was supposed to be this illiterate jock, and I read for it, and they really liked it. And they said, Larry, we liked you, but you don't come across as illiterate. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I'm mad because I don't sound illiterate, right? 
And, uh, but they really liked me and wanted to use me. Um, I had done a, a writer's workshop for Danny Simon, Neil Simon's brother, like a couple of weeks before where I was doing a reading and I really like got huge laughs in front of a lot of industry people at the time. And talking to Danny Simon, meeting him was like cool at the time. It was like a really big deal. I've always been a big fan of what's come before. Like I'm a huge fan of the old comedians and writers. So, so he was impressed that I even knew who he was, you know, Danny Simon being Neil Simon's brother and everything, and that he wrote for your show of shows, and I could talk about the sketches that he wrote and all that kind of stuff. So, but anyhow, make a, a long story even longer. <laughs> they liked me and decided to write a part for me as a cop in The Facts of Life, and I did a couple of episodes. But when I would go in to rehearse, I would just change the lines into something that I thought might be funnier. I didn't know that you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> the writer is sitting there who's being paid tons of money, you know. And here comes this guy. You know, I'm just a day player or whatever. And I'm going, mm, uh, I don't think I... Oh, 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 let's do this, let's do this. You know? And I'm just coming up with it. That's how I work. I just want it to be funny. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to do that. But then it would get a big laugh, and they would decide to keep it because I would make... I mean, once you make uh, Natalie and Tootie laugh, you're in. That's what I found, you know. <laughs> Give them a couple of bagels on the side, and you're really in, you know. By the way, they had a huge spread at breakfast. It was unbelievable. It's the most unbelievable thing I'd ever seen in my life. You know? So was that your it entree? It didn't last till lunch, too. Was that your entree into mainstream Hollywood, and you starting to make other connections? That was my entree. Well, not quite. No. I didn't make any connections there. But what I did was I realized that I had to do my own thing, that I, I was more interested in writing my own material than I was doing somebody else's thing. And so that's what I did. I really didn't make any connections at the time. I didn't, that didn't lead to any other jobs, actually. But it did lead to me thinking, i got to go back and do stand-up. And so it was right after that that I went back and started doing stand-up. And I didn't care anymore. I, just, I wasn't afraid. I just wrote jokes every day. I would go up to open mic night every single week. And I, would just, I, would, I didn't have a car, so I would have to borrow a car to go somewhere and take the bus or that kind of thing. And I would just find an open mic night and just do stand-up. You're listening to Larry Wilmore from The Daily Show with regular guest host Oscar Garza. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio. Be sure to catch our broadcast or podcast next week when we present two guests, each outlining both cultural divides and cultural bridges in America. Journalist Sam Quinones tells stories of Mexican migration, and author Peter Irons seeks to make peace between religious and non-religious Americans. More information is at our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Now we return to Larry Wilmore with Oscar Garza, recorded live at the Los Angeles Central Library. Being a comedian is not an right. easy thing, doing stand-up. But where did the persona come from in terms of your own background? And, and I guess it's a long way of asking what made you a stand-up? What uh, made you be able to be a stand-up? Well, like I say, like I said before, you know, I felt like I had no choice at the time. It was what I had to do. But persona is a hard thing. It's easier for some people than others. Like for me, for a lot of famous people, a lot of them start out like imitating other people and then they kind of find their thing. And I always felt like an empath. You know, I'd always, if somebody was kind of stuttering in school, I would kind of start stuttering and I would go, stop it. I couldn't help it. You know, and I think it was, I was good at impressions because of that. I had a really good ear. But uh, so in stand-up, I always felt like I was kind of a mishmash of a lot of different influences. I never, never felt comfortable quite being myself. But I always wrote things that made me laugh. Mm-hmm. You know, so performing-wise, I never 
felt quite comfortable, but writing-wise, I felt very comfortable. So it took me a while, performing-wise, to figure that out. And I feel, personally, like, not until The Daily Show have I felt completely comfortable with just being that. You know, what you see up there is the closest to my real sense of humor, unfiltered, where it's not... I'm not cheerleading for your thing, and I'm not doing the opposite. I'm just being contrary to everything, yeah. you know, and just finding the humor in that. So, yeah. and, and from a personality standpoint, I didn't ever have the opportunity to see you do stand-up, but was your was it this it's sort of thing? Like this, it's like yeah. a sort of the dry... Yeah, but do, like I would do jokes like... Um, you um, want to stand up? Oh, maybe I should. No, you know. <laughs> for the people in the radio, Larry is standing there. I would do the requisite racial jokes and that stuff, and I would say, um, every, uh, people always think I'm mixed with something, and they give me that look, too. They go, are you yeah, mixed with something? <laughs> you know, like I'm a secret recipe, and, and I used to tell people, I said, look, if I was a beer, I'd be a Negro light. <laughs> and, and I am a third less angry than the regular Negro, so <laughs> it kind of works. It just kind of fits together. But, uh, so I would do jokes, and my after-joke comments would always be the funniest thing to me, you yeah. know. And, uh, you know, I would do, I did a lot of ad-libbing and things like that, but, um, but I had a lot of different style of jokes, too, which, so I had more of a writer's act. I would do one-liners like that. I would also do impressions. One of the first bits I did was about, uh, now this goes way back. This is like 1983 when I was first starting out, so it is dated. I apologize. <laughs> but I was talking about politicians. I was saying how all politicians lie, but um, the only one that didn't was George Washington, chopped down his father's cherry tree. He asked me, he said, yes. I said, but today's politicians, like, if they asked Nixon if he chopped down his father's cherry tree, and, and it was like, Richard, come here, did you chop down my tree? Well, Dad, you know, uh, I... Uh, uh, looking in retrospect, uh, I can firmly say that although I, I did authorize uh, the initial break-in of the tool shed, uh, I must say that that in no significant way uh, links me to the actual chopping. And, it was the same. and the audience loved it. It was great. And then I would do Reagan, you know, but the, the coup de grace was doing Jesse Jackson. Like, Jesse, come here. Did you chop down my tree? Well, daddy. Um... <laughs> Um, now, the question is not whether or not I chop down your tree as much as do I believe in the tree's right to exist? <laughs> On that point, I do. Furthermore, Daddy, I believe in the right of all trees. I think it is wrong to address the plight of the territory alone. <laughs> There's the apple tree, the orange tree, the fig tree, they have been locked out of the garden. <laughs> it was this whole thing, and, it's a, and that always got the big applause, all that stuff. Yeah. You have been dying to perform again. I have been. So they, <laughs> it's been locked up. The Jesse, my inner Jesse, has been dying to rhyme all these years. You know, so. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. Oh, by the way, that bit told me I should do stand up. Yeah, because that was the first bit I wrote when I first started doing it again. That in a bit called Blackaway which was a completely different style of thing. It was a parody of a commercial, and this was based on a friend of mine. He was a college graduate. In fact, he had a graduate degree, and he went to Fisk College, but his voice always got in the way of getting hired, you know. He kind of talked like that, and he would say, instead of acapella, he'd say acapulco, you know. He was like, <laughs> what? And I thought, boy, if he could just change his voice, he, 
you know, he'd get the right jobs. And so I came up with this product called Black Away, where you put it on your tongue and it takes the black right out of your voice. You know? <laughs> and it's like, yes, revolutionary new Black Away works right in the mouth to remove even the most stubborn colloquial slang. You know? <laughs> and leaves behind clean, articulate wasp intonations. <laughs> So it was that type of thing. And the audience loved it, but I didn't, have, I didn't have a persona. I was doing writing bits. I did this thing where I wrote this thing, and it was a tape thing. It was, it was really funny. I, I would bring a woman on stage, a white woman on stage. Yeah, I wouldn't make a thing about race. And I would interview her. I would talk to her real quick. And then a tape would just start playing. And it, was, it suddenly, she found herself in this United Way commercial where I was doing Reggie Jackson, and I was talking about the joys of dating white women. <laughs> and it was really funny, because uh, all this music started playing, and, uh, and even I, I mocked her voice on the tape, and I would do it at the right moment so it would sync up. It was really just a fun conceptual, but it was a conceptual type uh, thing, you know. So. so what was your entree into you know, the television shows and, and, and writing. Uh, so writing and television, I started doing that because at the time it was tough for me to get auditions because, and Robert Townsend uh, talked about this more eloquently than I ever could just with the movie Hollywood Shuffle, you know, where he talked about, uh, I mean, we were in the era of the Eddie Murphy fast-talking ex-con and, and so every audition I was doing, you know, we need you to be more street, you know, more urban, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> And it just wasn't me, and I just, those roles weren't for me. And I realized, well, you know, I just got to write my own thing. And I was really inspired by uh, Keenan Ivory Wayans, too, who wrote I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, who just wrote his own thing. You know, Keenan always just did his own thing, too. And I thought, man, that's great. And uh, so I decided to do it for myself and just learn how to write and produce, and eventually I would do my own thing. Ironically, one of the first jobs I got was on Living Color. And I always actually would be real thankful to Keenan for that, too. I mean, I really learned a lot being on that show. But, um... As I did it more, as I wrote and produced and all that, I started to like it more, and I didn't miss performing for a long time. It was, I really enjoyed being behind the scenes. And I realized I didn't crave the lifestyle of a comedian, but I, I loved telling jokes and the art of doing stand-up, but I didn't like the lifestyle of traveling and all that. You know, and I met my wife, you know, we settled down, you know, <laughs> and all that, so... And the first show you worked on in Living Color was the first show? No, the very first show was Rick D's Into the Night. I don't know if you guys Oh, my that. God. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> it was fun, though. And you just wrote jokes, you know. But I was there for about five months, and then I got hired on Living Color. So, and it's funny. As soon as I got a writing job, I get called by Mark Hirschfeld, who's a casting uh, director at NBC. Mark gave me my first job on The Facts of Life. He was working with Eve Branstein, who's the head of NBC Pictures. And Mark used to call me in for auditions. He really liked me at the time. He was really nice to me. I couldn't believe it. I never had an agent. I never had an agent all those years and none of that stuff. He would always call me in for auditions. It was real nice. And as soon as I got the writing job, he calls me in to do this new show called The Seinfeld Chronicles, you know. And I go, oh, man, I would love to do that. And so, but it was my first week working my first job. And I... And I came this close to asking my boss if I could take four days off for my first week, you know. To, but to there be, was no way I could do it. To, act, to perform on the It was a talk? guest starring role, on it, and it was really funny. And I, and I went in and auditioned, and I killed in the auditions, too. And they really wanted to. They were going to hire me. What was the character? Oh, because here's what happened. I auditioned before I got the job. I don't remember because there were two things. I think I was, uh, it was something about a, I was in the back of an ambulance or something like that. I don't remember quite what it was, but I remember it was a lot of fun. It was high energy, and it was really fun. And then after the audition, I think two days later, I got the job. And they wanted me to start the Seinfeld thing in the same 
at the, like a day after I started my job. So I couldn't do it. I had to turn it down. And then six months later, Mark calls me again. and says, okay, Larry, you don't even audition for this. They just want you on Seinfeld to come and do this small part. You know, it's about three days. And I go, Arr! And uh, I tried to get out of work. And then I couldn't get out of In Living Color for those few days. I had just started that job. And people were getting fired every single week on that show. And Keenan was like Murphy Brown. He had a different assistant every week. He really did. <laughs> and that's not a lie, not exaggeration. As a writer, you were, you were afraid. You had to bring the heat every single time. And I couldn't miss you know, and I had to do it. And that was the end of me performing until I did it, you know, years later. And just think, all those years later, you could have been asked, so I, did you ever see any hint of this in Michael Richards when you worked in the scene? You know, I was going to say that. Uh, when I was auditioning, I was saying, you know, I had to stick a fork in you. <laughs> hey, Actually, I, I worked with Michael Richards years ago. Before the Summer Olympics in 1984, we both did a reading for the Olympics at the Taper, and he couldn't have been nicer. I was, actually had dinner over his house, and, and we both were in this thing, and we were really funny, and it was a lot of fun, and that was at, after he was doing the show Friday. So I actually met Michael Richards years ago when we did this thing, you know. <laughs> seen him recently? And he, yeah. <laughs> Haven't seen him recently, and I don't know what happened in there, actually, to be honest with you. But I thought he was very creative with his use of the N-word. <laughs> I give points on creativity, actually. <laughs> I have no defense for that, by the way, so if that's what you're looking for. No. <laughs> I was curious. The um, Office, which is another fabulous show, mm-hmm. you're a consulting producer on that show. Right, fancy name for a writer. I was gonna say, well, yeah, I was going to ask you, what the hell does that mean? They're just fancy names. They just run out of titles, and they just stick titles in it or whatever. Does that mean... You have to go in or you don't go in? You or? absolutely have to go okay. in. <laughs> Consulting you sounds like you got to write. Write right from home. <laughs> Does the brother have to go in? <laughs> I can just call you with my stuff. I got it on my napkin and, it, you know, I'll mail it in. <laughs> and what was it about? Uh, actually, Paul Mooney had, did that at a living color. He never came in. <laughs> and what was it about the office that appealed to you? Oh, man, I was a huge fan of the uh, Ricky Gervais version. In fact, I was in London in 2002 doing a seminar about the Bernie Mac show. It was this international seminar of television, and I was presenting the Bernie Mac show. They had never seen it, and I showed the pilot, and they were showing The Office, which hadn't come across here yet. It hadn't even been on BBC America. And I was like, oh, my God, that's fantastic. It was the comic relief episode. And I talked to the producers of The Office at the time, and, you know, we just had a good time. And, and, and we did a and a with the audience, and they said, Larry, for God's sakes, don't let them take The Office to America and screw it up. I said, that'll never happen. <laughs> <laughs> and then I end up working for it, you know, years and, later. It's so funny. And how did that I'm come? I'm the one screwing it up, you know. <laughs> how did that come about? That you? Uh, well, Greg Daniels was uh, Ben Silverman, who's now running NBC, um, he might have been over at the, there at the same time, and he acquired the rights of the office to do here. And Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant were huge fans of The Simpsons, and Silverman thought Greg Daniels would have the right sensibility to do it, and they all agreed. Greg Daniels, brilliant writer, worked on The Simpsons and a lot of other shows, did King of the Hill, too. And I've known Greg for years and years, because I was doing the PJs when he was doing King of the Hill. I was doing a deal with NBC at the time. I had done a pilot, and I just helped run the Whoopi show. But I had just gotten fired from the Bernie Mac show like uh, the year before I did two seasons there. We have to go. Yeah. We have to talk about that. Oh, sure. Minute. But no, go no. ahead. Keep Finish the story. <laughs> I just, my head just went back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should have brought that up. Oh, no. Don't talk about the war. The Wayback Machine is flawed. <laughs> um, so, thank you, thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> very good, very good. 
Shout out to Cigars by Shivas in oh, Pasadena, right. by the way. Shout out, shout out, Anto Camario and the boys. So because I was under a deal with NBC, I had to be put on a show, and they asked Greg. Would... <laughs> Make you earn your money, in other Exactly, words. right. Well, no, because in the 90s, comedies were huge, and they would sign people to deals, and they wouldn't have to do a thing. They would just sit around and think of stuff. When a brother got a deal, <laughs> he had to write in a show. No, but... <laughs> Right. I'm afraid of work, right? I was more than happy to go meet with Greg, and, and it was supposed to be like a temporary thing. He had two consulting producers. Just We just wanted to help make those five episodes, you know, just try to do that. And I remember people were real snotty towards us at the time. People thought we were going to mess it up because they had just tried couplings, I think, over here. And I always thought couplings was kind of derivative of friends anyway, so I'm like, what are people snotty over couplings for, you know? But anyhow, you know, you tell a writer you're working on the new office, they go, oh, okay, ready. <laughs> so we were kind of just out in this factory out in L.A. making these episodes, and it was a lot of fun. We just, we just tried to make ourselves laugh and uh, just tried to be true to the show but not copy the English show and just make it be more what we would do here. You're listening to The Daily Show's Larry Wilmore with regular guest host Oscar Garza. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Our final summer event takes place on August 28th in the beautiful BP Hall at the Walt Disney Concert Hall. Socalo and the Music Center present the writer and MacArthur Genius Award recipient Alma Guillermo Prieto with How to Be Mexican, a musical instructional manual. And on September 11th, internationally renowned author James Elroy presents L.A., Come on Vacation, Go Home on Probation at the Los Angeles Central Library. Socalo events are always free, but reservations are required. To reserve your seats and download podcasts, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, we return to The Daily Show's Larry Wilmore as he chats with Oscar Garza. Stay tuned to Socalo. What happens when a former war correspondent writes a satire about war itself? Well, we'll find out on the next edition of Air Talk Monday morning at 10 here on 89.3 KPCC. Guest host Frank Stoltz will be talking with longtime Newsweek writer Malcolm McPherson. We'll find out what he has to say about the war in Iraq using fiction as the storytelling vehicle. That's Air Talk Monday on 89.3. 89.3 KPCC reaches a large, active, intelligent audience. To learn how your organization or business can reach that audience, call 213-621-3592. Welcome back to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. We now return to The Daily Show's Larry Wilmore with Oscar Garza, recorded live at the Los Angeles Central Library. You brought up uh, Bernie Mac, which you created and you were the executive producer of. Thank you, thank you. Uh, <laughs> but oh, thank you. Thank you. it does beg the question, 
How do you get fired from a show that you created? Um, very nastily. <laughs> you know what? I have no idea. It was one of those things. At the time, I said it was creative differences. I was creative. They were different. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, there are so many factors. But it came down to the head of Fox programming at the time never quite understood the show. He wanted to put it in front of an audience. He wanted to recast the actors. They wanted to do all these things at the beginning, and I kept saying no, so he thought I was antagonistic towards him. He took it personally. I just wanted the show to be good, you know. So they were always, I don't know, looking for an opening to try to, you know, ooh, Larry's not doing a good job or whatever. But then we kept winning awards, and they were like, <laughs> If we won a Peabody, like an Emmy, we were nominated for a Golden Globe, we won the TV Critics Award for Best Show and Best Comedy, and it actually made them matter and matter. It was unbelievable. I'm not making this up. The night that I won the Emmy, I heard that uh, one of the guys was in the bathroom, somebody said, well, I guess we can't fire Larry now. I said, fire Larry now? What the hell is <laughs> What does that even mean? You know, Why would you want to do that? You know? You know, then they put us up against uh, my wife and kids, and, our, and we were off for like a month, and our, our ratings went down, and we came back, and I said, see, the show's not funny, and there's nothing I could do. I'm like, okay, well, that's what you think. And You've done okay. Yeah, you know, you they fired me, and it was very painful at the time, but I've always had philosophy that you just keep moving on, you know, and, you know, if you get fired, it doesn't matter what it is. And to me, it's just showbiz. It's just a TV show, for goodness sake. But you created the show, and the show's now in syndication. Yes. Right? So do you own the I life do have of the show? I profit participation, Oscar, if that's what you're saying. For the, for the, <laughs> entire, for the entire life of the show, or just the, just the seasons that you worked on the show? No, 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 no. No, it's... Yeah. No, as a creator, the Writers Guild did a good job in protecting its members for something that happened to me, actually. I mean, in the event that something like that would happen. So, no, you're protected. If you've created a project and that sort of thing, there are a lot of uh, protections for good that. For you. So, yeah. Let's talk about The Daily Show a little bit because yes. I'm, I, I love the show, as I said, and I'm fascinated by the bits that they do with right. you and the other correspondents because they, they do have this great kind of ad-lib quality about mm-hmm. them, but I'm curious about the process that you go through to put those right. bits together. You go to New York on a fairly regularly basis, regular basis to do them. They're scripted, though. How, yeah. how tightly are they scripted? Very tightly, because it's a, basically a live-to-tape show, so they have to know to the second how long the show is. I mean, the interview is timed out to what it probably will would be, you know, and they give John signals or whatever. And to leave in time for his pregnant pauses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very tightly scripted, but we, you, know, you just try to make it as natural as possible or correspondently as possible. John is just so great. He's really, really a smart guy, but he's a regular Joe. I mean, like, huge sports fan, you know, and has an encyclopedic mind, one of those, um, I mean, he can recall just facts about sports and things so quick, you know. But the show is really like being in a college dorm. I mean, people's dogs are walking around, you know. (laughs) People are really, I mean, you're going to the fridge, just getting out frosted flakes and eating while you're working, that kind of stuff. It's really laid back, and it's, and it starts with Stuart. He's just a real laid-back kind of guy, you know. But the writers are very talented, and everybody's always working on some different thing, and they have a lot of different researchers. The way my bits usually goes, I'll usually either think of an idea or they'll think of an area, and we'll call each other, and, and I'll, I'll either 
am already going to be in New York and I'll stop by and do the Daily Show. Or I'm going there to do the Daily Show because we have an idea. Or somebody will screw up like Michael Richards and say, get out here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'll get there as quick as possible. And uh, I'll give my take on it and they may have a take. And when I get there, I'll, I'll usually write it with my buddy uh, Jason Ross. He's one of the writers there. We'll do a first draft of it and then John will give him notes. And then the next day we'll do another draft. And then we'll do a rehearsal. And then John and I will just go over it word by word just back and forth, kind of jamming on it, trying to make sure it sounds right, make it more conversational if it has to be, dump out jokes or whatever, you know. What else do you like right now that you see? Or, or, and, and what did you like growing up in sort of the, those formative times and when you talked about wanting to be in show business? What, right. what did you like, uh, what did you see that you liked a lot and influenced you? I really loved television growing up. I was a fan of so many things. I always talk about the Flip Wilson show as one of my earliest influences, because he was, he was infectiously funny. I remember seeing him on the, the Johnny Carson show where I had never seen anybody make Johnny laugh as hard as he did. He did that joke about the, the woman who had the ugly baby, the guy on the train, he's, and he's trying to make the woman feel good. He says, and would you like a banana for your monkey? <laughs> or something like that. And Carson almost fell out of his chair. I, 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 I mean, he that. leapt. I mean, he was laughing so hard. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy is fantastic. He was hilarious. And I would imitate Flip Wilson. I would do Geraldine. The devil made me do it. You know, and I would, I would do all that stuff. And, and, you know, in the booth, in the back, in the corner, in the dark. You know, and all that for people that remember. But uh, that was my first big influence of me imitating it and wanting to do it, you know, and watching it. But I loved everything on television. Um, I'm still a huge fan of uh, nonfiction things like documentaries and news and things like that. I probably watch more dramas than comedies. Kind of interesting. I read more nonfiction than fiction. So I'm always kind of the opposite. And what do you like now? You know what? This is going to surprise I have just been converted to South Park, believe it or not. I never watched South Park. I was always against it because I was doing the PJs and I'm like, yeah, yeah, South Park, you know. And I remember I saw the South Park movie because uh, uh, Steve and I, who were writing the PJs, we decided to sneak out of work one day and go see the South Park movie <laughs> when everybody was working. And we were watching it, and this guy came in with his kids, and it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. If you've seen the South Park movie, you know, even from the opening scenes, it is shocking, you know. <laughs> and I had never really watched South Park, so I couldn't believe some of the stuff they were doing. But it, the funniest part of the show was watching the guy trying to wrangle his kids because he's going like this. <laughs> and he thinks it's going to get better. He thinks like, oh, well, maybe that's the cold open, you know. <laughs> it's got to get better. Than this. And then he, get, he gets up and his kids now have scattered, you know, around. And now he's trying to wrangle them, you know. <laughs> he's looking around and, oh, you know, the whole thing was Saddam Hussein and hell and all this stuff. And, oh, it was just... It was so funny to me, but I never really watched the show from that movie. And recently I started watching South Park, and it truly is a very subversive, <laughs> daring, uh, funny show. Very, very offensive, you know. <laughs> but it's so offensive, you can't believe that they're doing that. I think that really is the only way to get away with being offensive, is to be so offensive. So is, no, one can, no one can deny you when you're that offensive. It's like, do you know what you do? Oh, not only did we say that, we're going to do this, too. You know? I mean, they'll do, talk about abortions. They did this show on the homeless where they were making fun of the homeless. Change, do you have change? And I'm like, oh, my, there's nothing sacred on that show. You know? so is, but is there a line? Is there anything sacred as far as you're concerned? Sacred? That, well, I don't think you should... 
I, I don't know. I know. It's hard to say, you know, because some people can just get away with some things, you know. So it's hard to say what's sacred. I think you, pretty much the rules that are set up, you know, you shouldn't make fun of somebody's uh, bad fortune, like somebody died or that kind of thing, or make fun of people with diseases, I think, or, you know, real tragedies, you know, you should probably stay away from, with probably certain exceptions, you know. And, uh, <laughs> say, I know, my mind is working right now, but... And by the way, I always break these rules, too, so... Yeah, I don't like to put too many rules on it. So. You're a parent. Your lovely family is here with you tonight. Yes, they are. And, and I wanted to ask you, as a parent, what do you let them watch? Do you, do yeah. you let them watch everything you watch? What, what do you say to your... Daddy's doing research. You can't watch this show. <laughs> They're pretty good. They like DVDs and things like that. They're in the Harry Potter and all that stuff. But those kids' shows on the Cartoon Networks, those are some naughty shows, some of them, too, you know. I don't know if it's Kim Possible or some of those, you know, those, they'll say some bad words or whatever, you know, but they're like, no, Dad, it's okay. No, they didn't say that. They didn't say that. They'll deny it, you know. So you have to kind of watch those shows sometimes. It's funny. I'm mad at that, and I watch South Park. <laughs> but they, they don't watch anything mature on that level yet. I don't, they, they haven't crossed over into that, not yet. So, you, but but they you, do watch The Daily Show. They'll watch me on that. Or, or they'll watch uh, American. This is the funniest thing that they, my daughter did, Lauren, once. She was imitating American Idol, the auditions, and she was doing the people that get mad, and she's going, I don't know what you, beep, talking about, beep. And you're just going to, and I'm like, and she's doing the beep, you know, she's going, and beep, and beep. And then she does this, I swear to God, she goes, well, well you can just beep. <laughs> she did that. She put up her fist and did that, and I'm like, Ugh. All I could do was laugh. I couldn't say don't do it because it was a good joke. I'm like, Lauren, that's a great joke. This is a great joke. What are you I gonna... said, beep, beep. I would have said, hey, don't do that. But once she did that, it's a great joke, and I can't. She killed. What am I going to do? She killed. <laughs> what do you? Uh, yeah, what... that is a rule. If they did curse, but it was a really good joke. Yeah. <laughs> leave, leave them laughing. What are you going to do, Oscar? What do you have in mind next? Do you... Do you... You have uh, things in the hopper. You're going to stay in television. Give, yeah. You ever worked in fe- feature films? Yeah, a couple of things. Working on a feature idea that I'm, I may be doing something with Don Cheadle, who was on the Bernie Mac show. He is one of the most talented guys and one of the funniest guys too. He does like an unbelievable Tony Montana impression and and Polly from The Sopranos, and he does his lip up like that. It's really funny. We're thinking of doing a project about Fritz Pollard. He was the first black player in the NFL and was one of the first black coaches and had an amazing life. We're working on that right now. I'm working on the pitch. Maybe I shouldn't be talking about that. Maybe not. Also working on a possible book. <laughs> working on a project at NBC right now. Also doing... You're going to do a lot of stuff on the election with The Daily Show? Yeah, that's going to be my big focus for next year. Yeah. I may be commuting a lot from New York because with the election cycle, there's so many issues coming up. You know, And God bless The Daily Show... I have to tell you, I really, really am thankful for that show. You know, it really feels like it's one of the few places you can get up and do what feels like authentic commentary. And I give John Stewart a lot of credit for his integrity in, in doing that, that sort of comedy. And so I honestly feel so lucky to be in that show, to be honest with you. What's the most intriguing thing about the election right now for you? Well, I think the most intriguing thing is on both sides, nobody's really enthusiastic about anybody. It's like, that's who we got? Okay. <laughs> you know, so like the Republicans, are like, okay, so we got a Mormon, the guy who kind of goes like that, McCain, um, 9-11 guy, law and order guy. What the? Yeah. 
some guy named Hucka, what? What's his name? Who is that guy? You know? And the Democrats are going, ooh, well, we got a black guy? We got a woman? That's pretty good. Um, Edwards, what the heck is going on with the hair and all that? You know? I don't know. But um, I tell you, to me, it seems like I think the Democrats do have the edge on the Republicans because I think there's a lot of Republican fatigue right now, uh, especially with the last election. But it'll be interesting to see. It could be a very historic election. As a senior black correspondent, are you going to be uh, attached to the Obama campaign necessarily? I won't be attached to any campaign. (laughs) I don't think it's right to throw my hat in the ring. As a brother, I would love to see a black president. I'll be straight and honest about that. I think it'd be great, you know, because he's so clean and articulate, you know. (laughs) It's just amazing. Uh, He is really clean. Have you seen him? You should see his fingernails, Oscar, I'm telling you. Unbelievably clear. No, I think Obama's a, a fantastic... Uh, I didn't mean attached in terms of your own endorsement. I meant in terms right. of the show and whether you thought you would do more on him. Uh, that too. But I also think he's, he's you know, one of the most intriguing candidates we've had in a long time. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I'll be doing whatever uh, you know needs to be done. You're listening to The Daily Show's Larry Wilmore with regular guest host Oscar Garza. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Our final summer event takes place August 28th in the beautiful BP Hall at the Walt Disney Concert Hall. Socalo and the Music Center present the writer and MacArthur Genius Award recipient, Alma Guillermo Prieto, with How to Be Mexican, a musical instructional manual. And on September 11th, Internationally renowned author James Elroy presents L.A., Come on Vacation, Go Home on Probation at the Los Angeles Central Library. Socolo events are always free, but reservations are required. To reserve your seats and download podcasts, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, the audience asks the questions of Larry Wilmore. Stay tuned to Socolo. Hola, I'm Maria Hinojosa, host of NPR's Latino USA, inviting you to listen to a half hour of news and culture. You hear the voices of the diverse Latino communities from across the country, analysis and commentary by outstanding Latino thinkers and award-winning journalists. That's this week on Latino USA. Sunday evening at 10 on 89.3 KPCC. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. Welcome back to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, L.A.'s free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Now it's time for the audience at the Los Angeles Central Library to ask questions of The Daily Show's Larry Wilmore. I love the PJs. Thank you. And uh, I would tape it when I would leave the house. Uh, was, was I the only one watching it? Why was it pulled? I thought that it was going to have a long run. Poor PJs. 
no, we had a we had a really strong following. Chris Rock actually came up to me and said, "Man, that's the funniest show in the history of television." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Thanks, Chris. I don't agree, but thank you." <laughs> it just you know, one of those timing things it, when it came on just got cut and, and I don't know, just in a bad time, I think, you know. And the timing of the type of humor may not have been correct, too. You never know about those things. I think now it would probably play really well, especially with Family Guy coming back the way that it did. Because Family Guy came in when we did and went off the air also. That didn't stick around that long either, but it was able to get a second life. Was the PJs on Fox? Yeah, it was on Fox. Fox. But thank you. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Up there? Hi. How do you choose the projects that you're going to work on next? What What goes into your thoughts? (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of agony and <laughs> torture. No, you know what? I pretty much, um, some of it is I go by my gut, you know, and a lot of it is I just I just think of what, what is the thing that I really want to do next? What's going on with me, you know, at the time? Usually I pick between a couple of things. Like I, I usually feel like, is there something that I'm dying to express right now that I, that's going on to me that I want to talk about? The second thing is, is there something going on in the culture that I feel like I want to talk about? And the third thing is, I feel like, is there something that's kind of missing in the landscape right now that I think maybe should be there? And sometimes all those three things come together. Sometimes it's one of them. Sometimes it's a couple of them. But I'm usually hovering in one of those three areas. And usually I feel my best work comes out of just something I need to express. And if it lines up with something missing and something that's going on in the culture, then you're really lucky. But that doesn't always happen, you know. Plus it takes so long to get something on the air. Yeah, it can take a long time for certain things. TV, you never know. Sometimes with TV, especially in the age of reality, some things could get on right away, you know. But film really takes a long time. That's where you die the slow death many times, you know. Actually, following on that last question, are you um, politically active, and does the um, Daily Show kind of feed that need for you right now? I'm not politically active in terms of campaigning for anyone or working in a campaign. I had thought about that once, but I just... It just didn't feel right for me. I personally don't want to publicly endorse or that sort of thing because of the nature of what I do, I want to be able to be independent. I just think it's a better way to do what I do. And I always, you know, one of the people I always admired was Johnny Carson. You never knew what side Johnny was on. He just made you laugh, you know. And and he could, if the right messed up, they're going to get it. If the left messed up, they're going to get it. It shouldn't matter. So I, I like to just be fair about that sort of thing as much as possible. But I don't have really any aspirations to work in a political arena. Like, it doesn't really interest me. Making fun of it interests me, but not really doing it. So, Having worked as much as you have in network broadcast television, and now with your newfound appreciation for South Park and working on The Daily Show, <laughs> I'd be interested in your reflection on the creative limits of working in broadcast television as opposed to working on a cable company like Comedy Central. Right. It's getting harder and harder, I think, to be probably an original thinker in broadcast television or to really be as expressive as you want to, probably especially in comedy, only because HBO has pushed the limit so far. Even regular broadcast cable, as you mentioned, shows like The Shield and FX, those type of channels. You have to compete with all of that, but there are a lot of limitations. And most of the limitation seems to be on language, but a lot of it's on content, too. There's certain subject, subject areas that you just can't go into also, so that's very limiting also. It's not that you just can't say the F word, you know. I remember in the Bernie Mac show, they didn't want Bernie to smoke a cigar because the guy just thought he shouldn't be smoking. I thought, well, he's in his own house. It's 
neither illegal or immoral. What's wrong? You know? <laughs> but I had a big fight about that just because he didn't like it and he wanted to impose that on the character. But you That's know, the kind of unreasonable behavior that got you fired. Yeah, but they would... They would exactly. <laughs> <laughs> See, Larry, you were uppity about the smoking. <laughs> but uh, Tony Soprano, n- there was no way Chris Albrecht would have ever told David Chase, I don't think he sh- shouldn't be smoking a cigar, you know. They, they, they just wouldn't have that conversation. What does that have to do with anything? It's like, well, that's what you want. I got no problem with that. So those are the types of things that you can run into. Some. Just wanted to get your take on the rise of reality TV. Since those are obviously cheaper to make, do you think it's limited opportunities for those who are involved in comedy? Well, I think it's easy to pit one against the other, but I don't think it's necessarily true. I think the I mean, why doesn't reality TV knock out drama? You know, it, it doesn't drama. is thriving right now. Why does it have to knock out comedy? I don't know. I think it may be a coincidence. But at the same time, a lot of comedy, I think, in the past decade was a lot of mindless fare, and, and reality is a lot of mindless fare, and it's kind of taking the place of that, I would say. <laughs> but I think good comedy, there's still a place for it. It's just that a lot of the broadcast networks are turning into narrowcast networks, there's no such thing as a broadcast in the traditional sense anymore. I mean, we used to watch CBS along with 40 other million people, you know, and NBC. And we kind of shared that more, but it's so fractured television now. And so networks are following the fractious nature of what's happening and people's behavior. So CBS is branding itself as a particular type of network and only shows that fit that particular thing will go on that, where before you'd have Beverly Hillbillies and Carol Burnett and the Jeffersons and all of the family and Mary Dunmore all on the same station. So in that sense, with reality being, as you say, cheap and easy and that sort of thing, it's easier for the networks to do that and to take a chance on it when it's harder for them to take a chance on something that might be different that's scripted and may cost a little more in the beginning. But I always say there's nothing cheaper than a hit. Once something makes it, it doesn't matter how much it costs. Greed is always your friend in showbiz, by the way, <laughs> on their side. You know. I have to tell you, Larry, I loved your recent report on the N-word. I was dying oh, when you. I saw that. It was the funniest thing since the black-white racist a few years ago that Dave Chappelle did. Um, oh, that was uh, It was so hilarious. Uh, I would like to know if you improvised all those sentences and if whether you did or not, if you wouldn't mind repeating a couple of them, adjective, <laughs> adverb, uh, you could make them up well, as needed. Some of that, we, um, she's talking about the N-word piece on The Daily Show that John Oliver and I did. Some of it, we had thought of a lot of jokes or types of questions we would ask, but a lot of it we left to improvise. And John and I had never worked before, and, and we were making each other laugh. It was really funny. Like, we had one question where we were going to, instead of the N-word, we'd use the word Smurf. <laughs> you know, and all we had written was one question, but we just kept going with it, you know, and I would say, so do you live around a lot of Smurfs then, uh, you know, and it was so hilarious, and he was answering it, like, just exchanging the word, too, so a, a lot of what made it on the air was ad-lib, like the the thing about Gold Digger, that was an ad-lib, although the initial rapper question was scripted, the one that John had, and, uh, you know, some of the other stuff. I don't think I should do the bit. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have time for one more question. He said the N-word on Zocalo. <laughs> he did. He said it, man. I heard him. That's All right. One well, of my best buddies is George Lopez, by the way. And I always hey, George, how you doing, man? <laughs> I like to do that. 
When you created the Bernie Mac show, did you create it with Bernie Mac in mind, or did you create it with the idea of like an alternative Cosby show, or just wanted something hilarious? Uh, the initial idea I had, I was looking at Survivor at the time, and I wanted to do a show that had the feel of what they were doing in reality, like the real world. So I had this idea of just rigging cameras in a house and doing a sitcom where the action wasn't, didn't feel forced, where we were kind of eavesdropping on the action. But I didn't really have a concept for it. And then I saw Bernie's act in Kings of Comedy, and I thought, oh, man, that would be great. If I put Bernie in this house, and we had that emotional story about his sister with the drugs, the emotion of that would draw us in and make us feel like it was real and, and like we really were eavesdropping because we would feel so sorry for that. And I thought that was a great emotional hook. More than the comedy of it, I was looking at the emotional hook of it. And I pitched it to uh, Bernie at the time. I pitched it to Regency first, and they really liked it. And I pitched it to Bernie. You know, I thought of him with the kids and all the stuff from Zach, and he really liked it. And so then I developed it, and I got away from the idea of having a house rigged up. I mean, we were actually going to rig up a house and just doing it more traditionally, but single camera. But still, as I wrote it and as I produced it, the whole time we were going for, like, we, were, we just happened to catch this action. And one scene that really points it out, if you've seen it or ever seen it, Bernie's in the chair, and Jordan is crying off screen. He's like, oh, Lord. You know. And then he leaves, and the camera stays in the chair, because in my mind, I didn't know he was going to leave. You know? I, I, he was just talking to me. I didn't know he was going to leave, so we just wait for him. But he doesn't come back. And, and it's a little uncomfortable because now the rhythm of what you're used to in television is now a little different. So now it's intriguing. Now I'm intrigued. I'm like, well, what's going on? And, now, and then we cut to the hallway, but he's not there yet. I got there a little too quick. You know? But I can still kind of hear something going on in there. And it gives you a sense of realism because you hear him yelling at the kid. You don't know what, the, what they're really saying, but you know what it means. And that was the only thing that was important to me. All you have to do is know what it means. Then you see him run by, you know, chasing him. And then we cut back to the, to the room again, and he just comes in. And that whole sequence I was so proud of because it really expressed what I was trying to get out in that show. I wanted to eavesdrop on this family and just, I wanted to feel what it felt like to go through what Bernie's going through of being tortured by these kids. I wanted the audience every moment to feel that. Not, not so much to laugh at it as to just feel Bernie's pain the whole time. You know? So that was my goal in that, um, in that show. So thank Congratulations you. on all your success. Thank you. And uh, thank you. I hope, uh, hope, hope things continue to go well for you, black-wise and otherwise. <laughs> You've been listening to writer and comedian Larry Wilmore with regular guest host Oscar Garza, Ciudad Magazine Editor-in-Chief. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Socolo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Socolo events and to download past radio programs, visit SocoloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. The executive producer for Socolo Radio is Peter Stenshold. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. Many Iranians believe that someday their country will dominate the Middle East. This country, it is already 
the superpower of this region. It has got the rightful position. There's